Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 330 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing thrillers and horror stories that prominently feature the internet. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 16th appearance on the show. He's the author of such novels as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His new heavy metal horror novel, We Sold Our Souls, is out now. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> then next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her seventh appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and crafts laser-cut jewelry and soap with swear words inside. She lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Anthony Ha, making his eighth appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and he has a story forthcoming in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. I'm excited and slightly worried to be here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, Grady, I want to start with you, because you said in an email that you sent us uh, that you think that the original Pulse movie, you call it the Ur Internet Horror Movie, so that seems like a good place to start. So why do you call that the Ur Internet Horror Movie? Well, just and also just to backtrack, you know, there's also a huge chunk of internet horror movies from like the 90s, which are very, very weird. Um, but I feel like Pulse really moves from when these horror movies were all about like either like they were like sneakers or something like that about breaking into the internet or encryption or like, you know, someone gets a, a CD-ROM that has a game on it and then all of a sudden like – um uh, you know, Frank Langella is like killing their, their friends. Um, those are things where it was like, I don't know, there are some links to current internet horror, but Pulse was the one that really tried to get the emotion of the internet, not just this is a scary place that has scary things in it, but this sort of feeling of isolation. It's, it's a move, a Japanese film by Kiyoshi Kurosawa from 2001, and it's about this sort of epidemic of suicides and, People seem to sort of like become very isolated and withdrawn. They get obsessed with these uh, websites that are just showing people killing themselves, other isolated, withdrawn people. And then sort of ghosts that are deceased, very sort of like almost like nodes of loneliness start to seep into the real world. It's very artsy, but it's really, really unnerving. Um, and, and really one of the great horror movies of the 2000s. And it's the first time with these internet movies that the internet had an emotion and that emotion was loneliness um, spiraling down a despair which basically means like they anticipated YouTube comment sections <laughs> by a really really long time see that's interesting because I told you guys I've only seen the American remake of Pulse with um, Kristen Bell and I, oh, actually, right. I actually really liked the trailer for it and I just watched it over and over <laughs> again and then I felt like I went to see the movie and I was all psyched and I felt like there was nothing in the movie that I hadn't already seen in the trailer um and uh, so I was kind of disappointed with that. I, I still I still but I, I still love that. Tra I would just encourage people to go watch the trailer. I've always sort of been struck by the uh, 
when she checks her email and there's just help me messages uh, from her right. dead friends. Um, that was like one of the first times I think I had sort of seen that integration of ghosts in the internet or, or something. Um, but uh, see, um, Anthony, you said you've seen just the Japanese version. Am I remembering that right? That's right. Yeah. I um, actually, I just watched it last night for the first time um, to prepare for the podcast and I, I do think it had maybe been built up a little bit too much for me. I enjoyed it and found it definitely pretty unsettling. But there were also some small stylistic things that kind of threw me off. Like the music and sound effects didn't quite work for me. And, and in particular, there's this weird, almost Looney Tunes kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, but this weird sort of like unfurling sound whenever a ghost enters the screen that really undercut a lot of the big scare moments. But in general, I, I mean, I, I definitely found it to be a pretty enjoyable and, and satisfying horror movie. I guess another thing that sticks out from that movie is that there's this red... She, she gets this package from her friend who's dead, and, it, and there's this red tape inside, and there's a note, and it says, this keeps them out, I don't know why, something like that. And, um, and, and as the movie progresses, the characters find themselves in, like, whole rooms that are just completely encrusted with red tape. Um... Uh, and it's never explained, uh, but I always thought that was cool. I don't know if there's any, um, you know, uh, commentary about bureaucracy or something uh, with the red. Not thing. really. You know, Kurosawa has this thing where he just he really takes certain objects and just fetishizes them. Like there's a thing in the movie where people sort of sometimes um, corrode into ashes. They disintegrate into these drifting ashes. And I don't think there's any meaning to that. There's no biological meaning to it. And there's really no symbolic meaning except that these are ashes. And they become this almost like fetish object. And it's the same with the red tape. It becomes a sort of iconic, almost a fairy tale object, like a key or something. Um, and then the American movie just takes it because it was in the original Japanese movie. Uh, and so, Grady, I think you're the only person here who's seen both versions. Uh, are they pretty similar or, or are they pretty di different? No, they're really, really different. The Kurosawa movie is very slowly paced. Um, there's, there's a lot of times you can't tell if someone is a ghost or a person or a shadow. It's really beautifully shot. And the American version is lots of jump scares, people on a mission. There's a main character. And in the Japanese movie, it really splits its focus between several different characters. Um, they're radically different. And don't get me started on Pulse 2 and 3, the American remake to the se sequels to the remake. Uh, well, I, I think I am going to get you started on them because I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm sort of curious. Like, are they like, well, I, I'll say, I mean, the um, the original Pulse is rated 11 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the original Pulse? Or or the sorry, sorry, I mean, the, sorry. The, the American Pulse is rated 11 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Or I mean, I, I mean, the first one is rated uh, 11%. The first American one is rated 11%. Uh, how did, and, but you think the sequels uh, go downhill from there? Well, the sequels are really weird um, because they sort of do this interesting thing, which is they take, so basically at the end of the original Pulse and the American remake, it's kind of like you've got this depopulated world where everyone's just spiraled into this despair and, and has killed themselves. Um, and I mean, there's some survivors, but, uh, and then the original pulse ends with some shred of hope that there are people making these real connections who are going to find a safe place. And the American remake ends with these two stupid idiots driving to a dead zone so no one can get their cell phone signal. Um, and then the sequel picks up like in the depopulated world. And instead of red tape, the color red is what keeps out the ghost. And so like people walk around outside, like wrapped up in like red 
fabric. Um, and then there's like, some people are ghosts, but they can't remember their ghosts and other people are ghosts and they're really angry and they want to suck your face off. And then there's like a little kid and she's got a ghost mom and her dad is like really sad about ghost mom. But then like he gets a girlfriend, but then she's a ghost. It's really, really confusing, but it sort of ends with everyone dying. And then the little kid being put on a bus that's covered in red tape and taken off to like, I, I don't know, um, Australia. Um, and then the third sequel is, um, uh, it takes place like 16 years later and technology is bad, but the little girl's grown up and she's like a hacker girl and she's like really tough and disaffected. And you can tell that because her sleeves are too long and like her <laughs> hands disappear into them. And she finds a laptop that somehow still has a charge. And then like, I don't know, man, there's something with like a virus on a on a flash drive and it can make ghosts real again, but then it ends with everyone sad and she's walking away with a dog. Um, and the I, weirdest have to say, thing- I have to say, really, that actually sounds kind of cool to me. And I, I feel like that's <laughs> what I was sort of looking for in, in pulse because in the trailer for pulse, uh, you see that the ghosts sort of enter our world and then you see this plane, uh, you know, this passenger plane crashing. And I was like, Oh my God, what happens next? And it turns out that's basically the last shot of the movie. So, right. Know, it's like I felt um, so ripped off because I already knew everything that happened in the movie. Well, and I was also going to say one interesting thing about Pulse 2 and 3, not so much about 1, um, is they're filmed almost 100% in front of green screens. So even when a character is just standing outside on a street or walking past a wall, it's a green screen. And it's really, really weird. You start to feel like you're watching like nothing's real. It's very bizarre. It has this weird effect on your eyes. Like you start to look around after you watch both of them back to back and your room feels like a green screen. Like maybe that's <laughs> what they intended. It's odd. Do you think that's a budget issue or they were going for a specific effect? I don't know. I feel like like it's it's a budget issue. I get it for like depopulated cities and outdoors. But like there's shots of people just in alleyways and the alleyway is like green screen. It's just a blank alleyway. It could be behind whatever warehouse soundstage they're shooting on, and it's green screened. It's so weird. Um, okay, I want to get Sarah in here. Sarah, reminds me which which of these movies you got to you got a chance to watch again? Uh, Simple Favor, Searching, The Net, and The Circle. Okay, so I want to talk about Searching because um, there's sort of this interesting phenomenon where they, there's this there's a couple of these movies that the whole movie takes place on a computer screen. Um, so like searching is an example of that and unfriended and the den uh, of this list that I watched, um, you know, the whole movie is on a computer screen and you see everything through like chat windows and, um, you know, surveillance camera footage being in little windows and things like that. Um, had you ever seen a movie like this before, before watching searching? Not in memory. Um, I'm sure that I have, and I'm sure that, that it's been used. I mean, honestly, that <laughs> the only thing it reminded me of is, uh, you've got mail, <laughs> you know, completely different <laughs> context. Um, but that was sort of one of the first, uh, uses of it. And, you know, the whole point of, you know, the, the, uh, the movie is to, you know, have this blossoming or blossoming romance that's happening online. So it made perfect sense for them to do that. Um, but you know, it, it, it it makes a lot of sense because it's how we live out a lot of our, a lot of our lives. I mean, you know, my partner's at work right now and throughout the day, we're going to text 
Um, and you know, it's going to happen either on my phone or in front of the computer. So the majority of my friends don't live in the same state as me. And so I'm, you know, any sort of interaction I have with my friends throughout the day is going to be on Facebook or text or something like that. So it, it really is, you know, how, especially for, you know, I, I live in Silicon Valley, it's how many of us live our lives. It's what it looks like. Actually, maybe we'll, I'll pick up on that because your, your partner works at a internet company. I don't, can we, is that private? Can we talk about that? Oh, you can talk about that. I mean, he, he works at Apple, actually. It's not really an internet company. It's more of a, you know, hardware kind of consumer experience company, but. Well, but it's probably very similar to, I mean, I never worked, <laughs> I never worked really anywhere, but I never worked there. But, um, <laughs> I would imagine sort of the atmosphere, like, like, uh, cause I'm thinking now of the circle and there's like the yeah. campus with the, I don't know, I don't like ball pits and like yoga and right. all this stuff, but I don't know if the Apple. No, no, no. All of that. I mean, I actually felt like the movie you know, got a pretty poor ratings. I thought it was better than the the actual Rotten Tomatoes score that it has. Um, I, there were lots of things I didn't like about it, but I felt like it was, you know, that number is a little harsh. And I feel like people who live in this area would have given it a higher, <laughs> higher number in general, but because it, it, it's just, there's nothing about the circle that's exaggerated. That's just how it is. And all of this, you know, I worked at two companies when I moved out here. I, you know, left New York to uh, move to San Francisco to work at a startup. And, you know, right after my interview, they offered me weed and ecstasy. And it's just, <laughs> it's a completely different environment. And I was not prepared for the culture shock um, at all. In fact, one of my friends who is wise was like, enjoy your little cult when I left and I was like, ah, you know, I laughed it off. And in fact, that's actually pretty close to what it was. But there's a lot of sort of, if we humanize our company, we can get away with darker stuff going on. And so the ball pits and the yoga rooms and all of that is 100% what happens. And they do it because they want to feel like on the outside, they're friendly and, you know, approachable and fun and all of this stuff. And you can wear jeans and, and a hoodie with stains on it to work and no one cares. But, you know, it, it, at the heart of it, the, they're just as cold and, you know, interested in money and, and sort of interested in the bottom line and human disposability as any big company. Can I jump in for a quick sec? Because that's really interesting what you're saying. And I'd never thought about it that way before. But it is fascinating that there is this attitude with tech companies like they don't care how you look or if you're stoned or if you're drunk or if you're an asshole or if you like they don't care about anything <laughs> except your your work. They just right. care about the product. And right. that's really, really interesting because that just makes you disposable. Right. Like exactly. Yeah. It's uh, I never thought about it that way. Well, also, there's it, a lot of it, false it, senses of security that happen in California and Silicon Valley in general. Like I. And I, and I, and I don't know whether this is a West Coast thing, but I think the biggest difference that I found between being raised entirely on the East Coast and then moving to California, um, and, and being in the work culture was, and specifically startup culture, uh, was everybody's very friendly and welcoming immediately on the outside and then completely washes their hands of you if you make the tiniest mistake. On the East Coast, it's the opposite. On the East Coast, there's a sense of, um, you know, everybody's sort of standoffish and forbidding. And, you know, you, you, it takes a while to break down those barriers. But once you break them down, 
you will be treated like a human being. And if you make a mistake, somebody will say, oh, hey, we love what you're doing. We need you to do it 30% faster or something like that. And and you have that conversation. It's like, oh, okay, great. I totally understand. Everybody goes back to their to their lives. But it's it's a much more human uh, experience of having that initial sense of skepticism and um, not necessarily being entirely welcoming. But then once you get past that, you are accepted and you are treated as a human being. And in California or in the West Coast work culture in Silicon Valley, it's the opposite. So I did the opposite move where I went from San Francisco to New York. And I think that's certainly true. Um, it also reminded me of one of the things that I heard about Google, which is, I mean, very anecdotal and, and, you know, several years out of date now, but I think does speak to something real in the Silicon Valley culture, which is that you can sometimes tell someone's seniority by how they dress, but not in the sort of traditional way where, you know, the executives are all wearing suits or anything like that, but actually all the engineers and the people who are really secure in their jobs are the ones who like basically roll in wearing pajamas. <laughs> and then yeah. the people who are, you know, starting out, who are younger, who don't have technical roles, which are almost always sort of taken less seriously than the engineers, um, they all actually have to, you know, somewhat dress like adult human beings. Yeah. Well, let, let me talk about the circle specifically because so this is based on a novel by Dave Eggers, and it's a movie starring Emma Watson and Tom Hanks and Patton Oswalt are all in it. And uh, Emma Watson goes to work for this, yeah, very sort of Google type company, which is obsessed with surveillance, and uh, it sort of becomes something of a thriller. Um, and she gets more and more kind of wrapped up in things. Actually, the scariest thing in the movie, I thought. Was there's this scene where her extremely perky, cheerful coworkers come up to her and say like, "Oh, you, did you come? You didn't come to the weekend events?" And she's like, "Oh, I thought they were optional." And she's like, "Oh," and they're and they're they're like, "Oh, they are optional, but we'd love to see you there." In this very like overbearing way, where where you get the feeling like none of this stuff is actually optional. That that your whole life has to become this company. Uh, that literally happened to me. Yeah, you want to, you, you want to say more about that? <laughs> well, I, 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 I was, you know, when I, when I moved out here, I, I was in a startup where you lived and worked in the same environment. Like we all lived in a house together. And so you never felt like you were clocked out, even when you were clocked out. And there were times where, you know, like the, our CEO was 21 and he was like, Oh, we're all going to go to the club and take ecstasy. And I had been there for two weeks and I was like, there's no way that I want to go have a new drug that I've never had before with brand new coworkers who I both live and work with. I was like, no. And people treated me like, oh my God, what's wrong with Sarah? You know, and it was like, if I didn't want to come to any sort of social stuff, and I went to plenty of it, I just didn't go to all of it. And I specifically didn't want to go to the stuff. I mean, I was never a club person anyway, so that's a big part of it. I'm like, I don't care. I have no desire. Um, so I just want to stay home and watch watch a movie in my pajamas. Um, so, you know, but I was... Well, you've come to the right was, podcast. I so have. <laughs> but, like, there was totally this sense of, well, Sarah, Sarah isn't really part of the group. Sarah doesn't really want to join, you know, and just constant. That's why I felt like the movie was... Almost, and I have the same criticism of the TV show Silicon Valley. It's too much like that. There's not enough exaggeration going on where it doesn't feel like satire. It probably feels like satire to the rest of the planet, but here it just feels like, no, 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 that's literally what happens. Well, and let me comment too, Sarah, on you said that the movie is better. It, it's, it's rate, I don't know if I mentioned it's rated 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I was expecting this to just be abysmal. 
Uh, yeah. And I found it like pretty enjoyable. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I would have expected it to have a rating more like 60% or something. Right. I wonder uh, if the rating is a way for people to say they hate what the movie represents and like kind of the lifestyle it shows. And I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. This may just be a problem with the Rotten Tomatoes algorithm, which, as I understand it, basically each critic basically gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down and then the percentage right. of thumbs up. And so it means that if lots of people are like, eh, eh, it's like just slightly subpar, you can end up with a super low rating, even though if you were to average everyone's ratings, it might be like a 45 or something. That's also why I think Metacritic is a little better. I mean, all these aggregation sites have their problems, but like Metacritic at least like shows, you know, some degree of the intensity of feeling. Whereas, like, with Rotten Tomatoes, like you were saying, there's also the other problem where if everyone's like, oh, that movie was pretty good, then suddenly you have, like, a 95%. <laughs> yeah. Um, have, have you seen The Circle, Anthony? What you think? What'd you think of it? I actually haven't seen it, which is, oh. I mean, it was sort of similar to what... TechCrunch. <laughs> I know, but it's what Sarah was saying was that, like, I kind of... It doesn't feel like, you know, it feels too close to home, so there was no real desire in the same way that I didn't watch Silicon Valley until I really had to for work because it <laughs> didn't seem like what I wanted to do and with my free time. Um, I will say that one thing that's been interesting around about the discussion around the circle is I think even in 2017, the idea of this like, you know, big brotherish internet company seemed like a kind of on the nose, but slightly over the top idea of what these internet companies do. And now I feel like you're just like, oh, of course, that, you know, in the last year and a half, we've realized, oh, that's totally exactly what they're all doing. Yeah, I wonder if it had, if, if, if it would have done better if it came out, you know, a year or two before it did, because it's almost as if it's things are moving too quickly to the point where something like that is released. And when the trailer comes out, it's like, ooh, that's spooky. And then by the time it actually is released, it's like, yeah, we know, we get it. <laughs> Well, but, but where the circle, where the plot kind of got interesting to me was where they start suggesting that, um, that they have this politician who's going to live stream her whole public office, um, you know, day. And then they're going to integrate voting with like Facebook, basically with the circle. Um, and, and then like, I, I think the weakness of the movie for me was that it just ends very abruptly, uh, just as it's starting to get interesting. But I thought some of those ideas were really interesting. Uh, Grady, have you seen this? No, I haven't. And I wanted to see it actually a lot because I find sort of the, uh, the idea of work as a cult really fascinating. But, um, the reviews were so bad and people said it was so crummy. I avoided it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of too bad. I thought it was okay. And actually, like all these, maybe I just have a soft, maybe I just have a soft spot for this topic, but. Uh, some, some of these movies had terrible ratings, like I said, 17%. And I didn't think any, I didn't hate any of these. I, I kind of enjoyed all of them. So can I, I just like... say that I hope people start using that as like a poll quote day? Well, I thought it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, it, I feel like film critics in general can often have an almost like, I hate to be ageist, but I feel like a lot of film critics are older and they literally don't know how to review these movies. Like, I, I, I read the, you know, the New Yorker's Richard Brody wrote a really cynical review of uh, Searching. And one of the things he blew right past is he called the opening desktop screen a generic background, a generic computer background rather than the very specific Windows background everyone had at that time period, which was very cool that they did that. And, you know, I feel like in general, you, a lot of film critics are in such a completely different world 
that, you know, it's the same reason why I feel like a lot of science fiction often doesn't win awards and stuff. It's like, they just don't know how to, you almost have to have more experience with social media in general to even understand what's going on in these films. And if you don't, if you're an old person who doesn't have a, a you know, necessarily even a, a Facebook account, it can be very like, awkward to read their reviews of these films without feeling like you're reading, you know, here's a writer at the New Yorker, obviously very smart, very brilliant, you know, many years of experience as a critic. And yet you feel like you're actually reviewing a or reading a review written by your crusty, you know, grandfather who just doesn't get it. As a former film critic of many, many years, allow me to respond. Um, <laughs> no, I think you have a good point, And I think it goes a little further than that. Um, you know, one of the big problems with film reviewing is that it doesn't really pay much anymore. And so the people who do get paid are expected to review a lot. And so you wind up seeing people review stuff that's way outside their wheelhouse. Um, yeah. It drives me nuts when people who don't know anything about Chinese cinema review Chinese movies. They don't have the context right. for it. And it's like you're saying, a lot of these critics don't have the context to review these movies. And so they're kind of trying to do their best and they know they're out of their depth. And that sort of leads to point two, which is, not only does that make them irritable because they'd rather feel in their wheelhouse and safe when they're reviewing something so they don't say something dumb. The other part of it is a lot of film critics feel, or at least many that I know, you do feel this, and I did certainly, you feel a sense that the internet is your enemy. I mean, it is reducing yeah. your pay. It is reducing <laughs> your prestige. It's spreading your job around to a bunch of knuckleheads who don't know what they're doing, who just happen to have an online account somewhere. And so you do kind of sit down to watch these movies with a bit of like a chip on your shoulder because you're like, Oh, now I watch a movie where I'm supposed to have fun looking at the thing. That's like basically chiseling away my job. And is the reason my kid's going to a state school instead of Harvard. <laughs> well, I think there's also an element of just, it's there's, you know, it's just suspect because especially the, there was a period where I think there were, they were treated as, Oh, it's, you know, this sort of lowbrow thriller that is also incorporating this gimmick, which in some cases was yeah. just the gimmick of putting the internet at the center of it. In other cases, it was the gimmick of, oh, it literally takes place on a computer. Yeah. Um, and I think we're starting to move out of that because you're starting to get, but, you know, because it's become such a part of our lives that, you know, a movie like Searching or Ingrid Goes West can be reviewed almost as if, oh, you're like illuminating a real, social trend as opposed to just using this as a gimmick. And I don't necessarily think that's, I think that slightly overrates the, you know, quote unquote serious movies and underrates some of the thrillers. But I think that's part of the dynamic at play too. Sure. Horror yeah. movie plus internet. It's lame, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't equal serious for a lot of people. Let me say first about, about searching that I, you know, whether it's a gimmick or not, it was, it worked for me. I mean, I was like 45 seconds into that movie and I was already crying, you know, I mean, yeah. Uh, like it really got me, but let, yeah, I, I guess let's go, let's talk about, um, Unfriended is sort of the first example that I can kind of think of, of the whole movie is on a computer screen or at least the first big example. Uh, actually that, there was a movie that's, right? oh, sorry. There was a movie that same year by Nacho Vigalondo, the Spanish filmmaker called Open Windows that, uh, I, Elijah Wood, I think is in it or he produced it, but it uses the same gimmick. So I think they came out around the same time and open windows may have been slightly before. Uh, is that good? Open windows? Yeah. Well, it, it's actually, it, it doesn't pull it. I guess it's hard. 
it's not as good as Unfriended Dark Web in terms of using the gimmick. I think it's a little better than Unfriended because I don't like the supernatural aspect of Unfriended very much. Um, so, but it, it feels a little more contrived because it doesn't have a supernatural an- angle and there's a lot of like emotional melodrama, uh, in it. So it's like, it feels a little contrived. It's interesting. So, so by the supernatural element of Unfriended, you mean the fact that they're able to get a five person Skype call going with no problems? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The internet works. They don't just sit there like hanging for like 45 minutes. Although they do use the, um, you know, the spinning wheel and like the frozen screen to great effect. Yeah. So are you guys fans of Unfriended? Uh, Anthony? I would say that I think there's a great gimmick and that there's one specific thing, which is the, um, the group call and then the mysterious additional caller who just doesn't respond to anything. And I think that is for some reason just incredibly chilling. I think the rest of the movie is pretty whatever. It's, it's fine. I didn't like dislike it, but I don't think it like does anything particularly interesting with the concept. But that initial setup I thought was really strong. Whereas I thought actually Unfriended Dark Web also not necessarily a great movie, but actually does more with the format. I kind of agree with you almost totally. Um, but I gotta say, you know, it's weird. Uh, both movies have this real flaw, which is that everyone only stays on one device. Like, if they're having a Skype call, no one's picking up their cell phone a whole lot or texting or there's something weird about it and a little contrived. And I kind of felt like the format would lend itself so well to a romance or a comedy or something else besides a horror movie, because you have to have a reason for these people to stay in front of their screens, you know, and it, you have to stay in front of your screens only goes so far for me. (laughs) I felt like they were picking up their phones. I mean, they were some, I guess. I guess I was just annoyed we couldn't see their phone screens, too, until they showed them to their webcams. Um, But, yeah, I just, I didn't, and, you know, and it's really stupid to me when people are sitting there screaming, no, no, don't go up this, don't blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, like, you know, it's like in a found footage movie where you have to come up with some rationale for why they kept filming when they should just drop the camera and run for their lives. Yeah, yeah, well, this is sort of the next iteration of the found footage thing. Right. Yeah, I really wish someone would do a comedy or a romance with it because it would work so well. I wasn't able to watch Unfriended Dark Web because I, I missed it when it was in theaters and I couldn't find any like easy way to, to rent it online. But I did read the um, Wikipedia um, synopsis of it, which is more or less completely incoherent. Um, but like, <laughs> like seriously, like some more people need to go in and, and make that like make sense for someone who hasn't already seen the movie. But um, I did I did notice that it. Uh, it incorporates uh, swatting, um, and uh, yeah, and so I thought that was just sort of an interesting, you know. What was the swatting? I don't remember that part. There, there's the one, um, the, one of the friends, right? Basically, yeah. there's like a phone call placed to uh, the police saying that he's, you know, basically cut from his some of the recordings. Yeah. Where it's like this, you know, call the, po- the police saying he's, like, going to go crazy. Right. And then when the police arrive, they, like, play that recording again to make it sound like uh, he's, like, in the room going crazy and they, spoiler, kill him. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I guess because I didn't see the whole SWAT team storming the house. Like, I didn't. Yes, you're right. You're right. And apparently they also, like, hack his computer to make it play a shotgun sound so the police right. think that he's shooting yeah. at them. Yeah. Because, yeah, you never see the police in that scene, right? 
They, they didn't have the money for a SWAT team. They only had the money for his, like, you know, squibs exploding yeah. on his chest. It's like American Ninja 2, where it's like, it takes place on a U.S. military base, but they couldn't afford uniforms. So they're like, oh, you know, we just wear, like, surf trunks and, like, muscle tees because we want to <laughs> blend in with the locals. Um, Anthony, you um, interviewed the director of Searching, right? I did. Um, and he, it was interesting because he was very, very willing to throw all the other movies, particularly in the sort of, not just about the internet, but in the laptop, you know, I don't, I think there have been different phrases for it. I, I don't love any of them, but like what, all the, like, particularly the unfriended movies kind of under the, the bus. Like he was like, Oh, I don't think anyone's actually made a good movie. Um, with in this format, hopefully we made a good one. Um, and, and it actually was made by the same production company that made Unfriended, which is, um, Timur Bekmembetev's company. And, and they, I think, want to turn this into like a whole, you know, genre of like every year they'll come out with their new laptop thriller movie. Hmm. Cause I mean, searching is great. I mean, I, I really, really loved it. I, I liked it. I, I also, I did also think the format started to hold it back towards the end of it. And I thought like the resolution of the mystery wasn't that great, but I think it, it probably has the most interesting use of the format is the best at actually having real characters in a believable story. Um, and, and yeah, that opening montage, which is that sort of just like their family life for like a decade in the form of stuff that is stored on their computer, I thought was amazing. I mean, I think yeah. if, if anything, it's just that the rest of the movie doesn't quite live up to that, but it, it, I thought that was so good. It reminded me of the opening of Up. Yeah, I was yeah, like absolutely. very confused about what, what kind of movie I had signed up to, to watch for. I was like, why, why is this so sad? I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree with you that in retrospect, the plot, I was like, oh, it's just kind of an average CSI kind of plot. But but while I was watching it, I was just so invested. I thought John Cho did such a great job of making me care about that character. I, I was just, yeah, I was just really emotionally involved in it while I was watching it. Yeah. Well, I guess the one thing that got me, particularly while I was watching, was that it felt like the first two-thirds, they did a, a good job of let's, that here's a reason for why this is unfolding on the laptop. Um and then in this, in like the final act, it really felt like leaning really heavily on here's YouTube footage of a news clip. And this is how we're going to tell our story. And that was just, you know, kind of a letdown for me. You know, I do think it's really weird. And maybe this is me just sounding really old and someone should just shoot me. You know, they should swat me and get rid of me because uh, I'm hogging <laughs> oxygen. But it is really weird to me. The idea of people going to a movie theater to watch a computer screen like that's bizarre. They could just watch it on their actual computer screen and then it would be like 3D. But also, like, why do you want to see something? Why do you want to see it that big? Like, why do you want to pay money to go have a communal experience? It's like watching someone else play a game, you know? It's like, it's so, it's just so odd to me. Like, well, I don't there know. Are, there are, there are, apparently the young, the, the kids, because I, I went to LA about a month ago with uh, a friend of mine and her kids and, I was charged with watching her little boy for an afternoon and all he wanted to do was watch YouTube and he wanted to watch other people playing video games on YouTube. Oh yeah. Just, yeah. I was completely, my mind was blown. I was like, this is insane. But I, I do think that, you know, one of the things I loved about searching was that and there were a few very artistic shots, like where they, where they had the screensaver or the sort of zigzagging. <laughs> oh yeah, thing yeah. The colors. Yeah. Up. 
yeah, was taking up the majority of the screen while these messages were coming in. And I thought that was really lovely um, that they that they bothered to do that. Um, and, you know, it made it sort of eerie. But again, like this, this is this is where we live our lives. So many of us. And, and this is how we are. You know, we, we have all of these memories that have been recorded that are digital, that are saved on our hard drives and on our phones. And, you know, to me, it's just it's just so second nature that it feels normal and it feels like, you know, that there isn't. I'm wondering why more stories aren't, aren't, aren't told this way. It, yeah, Grady, this is why you have to watch it on the big screen because like that thing starts and I'm like, oh my God, it's beautiful. It's transcendent. This is almost a religious experience. Then I'm like, oh wait, that's a screensaver. <laughs> yeah. so, like, on the big screen, it really was amazing to look at. It was. Well, it is also really interesting. Like some of the effects people get visually, like not to jump to another movie, but like, like me, that when she's holding up her phone and filming people, it's like you've got a frame within a frame, which is used to be something a director would have to do with like, um, you know, with the geography and the composition, like using the, the architecture to like carve off part of the screen. Now it's like a frame within a frame. You can jump like, you know, I remember people were like throwing up when Oliver Stone did it in Natural Born Killers, but like you can jump between like film stocks and, and film mediums almost and like, and between aspect ratios really seamlessly because you've got this excuse that, well, it's shot on the phone and it's shot here and it's shot on a security camera or it's like different windows in a screen. So it's interesting to see this stuff that used to have to be sort of metaphorical, like literalized. What did you think, Grady, of Like Me, just overall? You know, okay, I actually liked it to a large extent. Um but and, and, I, and I think it also uh, answers the question of who's the most underrated character actor of 2018, who would be Larry Fessenden, who's I always think is great in these movies uh, and never gets as much screen time as he does here. Um, the only two things that really bugged me about it is one, I thought the food stuff was just gross. That stuff grosses me out, like watching people eat. And, ugh, I don't know. I don't like it. Um, and the other part was, you know, I hate these endings, which is like, you're on the internet, but now there's real violence and, oh, it's chilling. And then you have to sort of sit with yourself and what you've done and really think. And this sort of, I just feel like it's such a lazy, bleak, open ending. Like, I, I don't know. I really didn't. I sort of left a bad taste in my mouth. But otherwise, I thought it was like really uh, appealingly hyperactive and it got pretentious at times, but I kind of liked the characters and I liked their connection and I liked sort of the weirdness of it. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So this movie. This movie is about uh, there's a teenage girl and she has a, a YouTube channel and she kidnaps the manager of a hotel that she's staying at and um, sort of, yeah, like makes videos where she's sort of torturing him, uh, which becomes super popular. And then they and have he kind sort of, of doesn't mind. Yeah. And, and he's sort of like he has nothing really going on in his life. So this is sort of weirdly appealing to him that this this attractive girl has taken an in interest in him. And, and like Grady says, it's like a lot of it is incredibly beautiful. A lot of it I, I, is a little too slow for me. Yeah, um, it's very weird. I, I I'd be curious to know like what the back what the story is behind this movie, like who made it and why. Why? Um, well, probably my guess would be that you know it's a it's a glass eye pick, which is Larry Fessenden's production company. So the budget was probably super low. Um, Larry's really about if someone's got a vision and they come to him with this idea that's like really unique. If they can keep it, if they can do it for thirty or forty thousand bucks, he's you know, gives them almost total control. And I think this probably was a budget of between 20 and 50. I can't imagine it was much more than that. Um, and so, like, I kind of think you just let people run wild and see what comes out as long as the, the you can keep the cost down. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely worth watching, and I, I kind of liked the the ending where there. So so throughout the movie, you see this um troll. Yeah, this troll. This this like um I don't know. He he kind of looks like um Ben Shapiro or something, and he just like <laughs> stares into the stares into the camera with a dead eye stare, and just is is just says the most vicious uh antagonistic things. And then there's this contrast when she when she meets him at the end, you know you see what he's like in real life and it's completely different. And, and I, I thought that was pretty hilarious. No, I thought that part was great. I just thought that that bit on the beach, I was kind of like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. Has, uh, Sarah or Anthony, did you, either you guys see this movie? Nope. No, no. Well, you should check it out. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, I'd never even heard of it. Yeah. I don't even remember. I, I, I think, yeah, how I found a bunch of these movies is like, there was a list on, I think it was slash film. I forget now, but, you know, it listed a bunch Apple of- TV had a bunch of them. Like I found almost everything on Apple TV. I wasn't able to watch almost everything, but I found it all. Well, because you didn't have time. You're saying you didn't. You could have. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, that there are. Oh, that's. Uh, yeah. Uh, I just rented most of these off of uh, Amazon.com. Um. Well, Sarah, what, what's another movie that you watched uh, this week that you uh, think we should talk about? Uh, I saw a simple favor, but I, I did want to mention the the one thing that well, two things I didn't like about about searching. Um, one of them is that there seems to be this trope within within the whole like the the horrors of social media thing, where for whatever reason, you know, there are these teen characters who are very stereotypically teens, and you know because they they are you know, immoral or whatever, and, and they are shallow. And I, I see that so much more in cinema than I do in real life. And it's starting to drive me nuts. Like, (laughs) and, and the one thing I didn't like about searching was that, well, first of all, and this is totally minor, but I find it completely inconceivable that a Silicon Valley engineer would not, uh, would not know what Tumblr is, but also, and I feel like they did that for the benefit of the audience. You know, they did, because the audience might not know what Tumblr is, but everybody around here is, and Tumblr has been around for a while. So that was a little silly. But beyond that, the teenage girl that they had where she first, you know, was sort of like blowing off the father's call and was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I was just friends with this girl because I was trying to get into, you know, UC Berkeley. And, and then later on, she sort of pretends that they were close and she, you know, yeah. films oh, herself God, crying. I, I just, I feel like I've seen that in cinema a lot, but I haven't seen it in real life. And so, you know, I did not like the stereotypical shallow teen girl thing, uh, in that, that they sort of resorted to sometimes. But that was the only, you know, thing that, the major thing that, that bugged me. Um, but the other one that I saw that, that is in theaters now was a simple favor. And I thought that was actually, wait, fantastic. Sarah, so, actually, before we get to a simple favor, let me pick up on what you were just saying about searching because I did, I mean, I kind of liked the, the, the fakeness of, of people when a tragedy or, you know, something that they can get attention for comes around. Cause that did ring true to me on some level. But the, um, what really rang true to me was all the comments on the videos where yes. it's like, you know, like it's like 12 reasons why the dad did it. And like just yes. all these like unbelievably, you know, like, you know, she's dead already. Why are they bothering? Like just all these just yes. incredibly cruel, vicious. incredibly cruel. Yeah. That was totally realistic to me. Can I jump in on that for a sec? Because one of the things I think is really, I don't know, because I, I agree with you that there is this idea that, um, 
we all suspect other people are faker than we are and not haven't earned their emotions the way we have. And they're all shallow and kids are shallow. And so when you start making movies about other people like this, you know, and these sort of things, you tend to make these, you know, they're these shallow kids on the internet. These people are faking their emotions. And I do think that's really lousy, but I do think there is a way that there's been a real callousness that's been caused by the internet. I did a lot of, I'm a big conspiracy guy. And, um, I sort of been away from the world of conspiracies for a long time. And I just wrote a book where I was like, sort of did a lot of research, getting back on the boards and stuff and seeing what was up in like conspiracy world. And there is this really, really cynical thing around big public tragedies like shooting. So where it's, and it's not just the internet. I mean, I think it's a sort of media driven thing. And by media, I don't mean the news. I mean like, you know, television and radio and, and the internet where the bodies aren't even in the coffins. The coffins aren't even in the ground and everyone starts having an opinion. You know, everyone's yeah. talking about what the political meaning of this shooting is or whether these were crisis actors or how fake this guy's reaction is or, you know, he couldn't have been calling from inside that closet because look at the timestamp on this video. Like this real idea that things are on the internet to be solved or things are in the news to be solved or opinioned about. And it's like, yeah. I don't know how many opinions you can have about six, eight, 12, five dead children. And so that's, right. and, and I feel like it really induces a kind of callousness. Um, and, and I, I don't want to be one of those people who's like internet bad, but I do think that's a behavior that, that definitely media, um, television, radio, internet has, has really, really catalyzed. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about it is that it's callousness, like you're saying, Grady, but also combined with this sense of righteousness, like this yeah. feeling that, you know, the world needs to hear my opinion about yeah. this, that I, yes. and I've been guilty of this, absolutely, where, you know, like, you know, for example, with the Kavanaugh hearings, this sense of like, oh, like, can we be silent now? No, like, I must be like the millionth person to explain that bad thing is bad. And I think it, cap you know, searching does capture just a little slice of that. And also how quickly the narrative can change that it starts out with, oh, he's a hero. And then the next day he's a villain. And, and I think that was also completely believable. Yeah. Well, and that's something that you see a lot in a movie like, or a book like Gone Girl, which doesn't use the internet very much, only sort of ancillarily, but this idea that the court of public opinion suddenly has teeth. In China, they call it, I don't, I don't, uh, I can't say the Mandarin, but the, the English translation is the human meat search engine, which is like, <laughs> Like sometimes, sometimes you'll have someone like there was a, there was a famous case and I'm probably getting some of the details wrong, but where, um, uh, I think it's like a, a girl was like, Oh, I work in like the public security departments, like the local police basically. And I spend all my time shopping or, you know, it's someone who steals a handicapped parking space and people online will see a video of this and they'll get furious and like who is this and they'll track them down and they go to these bizarre lengths they're like okay there's a wall calendar in the background and it's a calendar that's made by this like soy sauce company and it's only sent out to their customers and that's from you know Xi'an so it's got to be in Xi'an so then they and then people in Xi'an are like oh you know what she's got those nails on that you get at this certain uh, chain of salons that does your nails I mean it's really and they'll find the people and often the people will then like have to hide in their houses or um, yeah. not go outside for a while and it's really fascinating and the thing that makes China so different is the scale it's just instead of having hundreds of thousands of people searching you've got millions of people searching and it's it's really really fascinating to see this stuff on fast forward 
Yeah, I think I'm more optimistic. I don't want to say optimistic about it, but I, I think that to me, it's just uh, something that is common in humanity. It has always been there. And the only thing that the internet has added to it is, you know, that it, it changes the look of the platform. Because having lived, for instance, in an American small town, you know, the idea of the populace coming at you with pitchforks and, and torches because they have an, an opinions about something that they did not witness and are not qualified in any way to have an opinion on is I feel, you know, uh, deeply central to the human experience of how people behave in groups. And sure. so I, I don't think it's a new thing. I think that, you know, we just see it a lot because of the format of the internet. Well, but one, I think, uh, I, I think the new thing though, is that it used to be like, if everyone in your small town turned against you for some stupid reason, you could like literally move to the next town and probably no one there had any idea about any, anything that had happened. And now it's like really hard to escape. You know, if, if, if the internet collectively tars and feathers you, uh, you know, it's very difficult to, Escape that. Sure, but but people still like you know you if if you are run out of town, you know for instance you know like I, I can't help but think about the you know the 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 bit in Romeo and Juliet where he banishment is this huge terrible uh, thing to right. endure for what happened a terrible punishment and you know it's it's a pretty big deal to, I mean, I think people, a lot of people aren't necessarily invested in their communities and they move a lot because of career or whatever, but for people who are invested in their communities or spent their whole lives in a community, it's a huge deal to have to leave. But I think there's an interesting thing, because I think right now we're in a transitional phase from sort of old media to new media, and there's old media habits that new media really can just make a meal out of. So I agree with you. I don't think these are new behaviors, but... Think about the fact that if something, the more something approaches being in print and widely disseminated, like a newspaper or a, the nightly news, the more real it is. So if you guys were like, Grady is a man whore. Okay, well, you're saying I'm a man whore. So what? You can follow me down the street saying I'm a man whore. Really, my skin's pretty thick. Uh, I'm proud of being a man whore. But then someone writes it on a bathroom wall. Okay, that's the first, it's in writing. And then someone prints it on something that looks like a newspaper or a headline and a font I associate with a newspaper. Headline. And then someone makes a video about it. So that's a man whore. They're like, oh, he's a, you know, he's sleeping with all these people and giving them all venereal diseases. The more, and I think the internet makes it very easy. You know, it's like, well, I, I, you know, where'd you hear that lie? Well, my friend Barney. Well, that doesn't sound very convincing, but I read it in an article on the internet and it linked to this study. Well, that sounds really convincing. And so I think the new, the old media habit of believing stuff, the more it looks like the nightly news or a newspaper article is something that's so ingrained in us that the internet is able to do that very quickly and widely. And so lies kind of can look true. And I think yeah. that won't be the case in 10 years. But I think right now it does look like that to us. Well, I, you know, Grady, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's teaching college right now. And he said, like, among the students, there's, the, you know, people will cite, you know, have citations. And, and he's like, what what source is that? this? And they're like, oh, it was oh, on no. the Internet. You know, oh, like, yeah. it's just, it's just, you know, everything on the Internet is this undifferentiated, you know, wisdom where everything has exactly the same truth value as anything else. And, and yeah. it's really scary. I, I do think also that, you know, that social media companies have a responsibility to address it in the, the in their infrastructure, in their user experience head on and recognize that yeah. they have created some of this. Like just the fact that, 
because Facebook, I really honestly think that part of the negativity of the internet comes from a sense of artificial positivity that the internet tries desperately to foster. So Facebook, for instance, because they don't allow a dislike button, they don't allow ways of saying, I don't like this unless you engage. So they give you the only option if you don't like something that somebody posted is to go into the comment section and, and, you know, possibly invest yourself for three hours. And so I feel like because there's this fake sense of positivity, the negativity gets amped up and, 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 you know, sort of exaggerated even worse than if they had healthy ways of, you know, of, of, you know, expressing, I don't like this or this link is stupid. This story is stupid. This story is shallow. There's no way of doing that in integrated into the user experience and there ought to be. Well, and I, I also think there's a real interesting sense of um, self-branding and self-presentation that's really, I mean, I guess it's always been around, but there's a unique version of it on the internet. So my wife owns a restaurant and occasionally we'll get these people like influencers who want to come and basically sponge some free meals. And, you know, I'll look at their Instagram accounts. Instagram's the big one. And like, these aren't people. These are brands like masquerading as people. Like it's fascinating to see that someone has made a job out of being sort of an artificial version of themselves. It's, I, I find it really, really fascinating and depressing all at the same time. Well, maybe this yeah. is a good, actually, let me, let me get Anthony. Do you, did you have anything you want to throw in quickly before we? Uh, well, I, I, I do. I'm a little worried about like just being like, oh, here are also my thoughts about the internet. But with that said, <laughs> here are also my thoughts about the internet, which is just, I think one of the other things that searching also captures is the fact that it, that there's this weird sort of aggregating effect of like that you were talking, Sarah, about the idea of like, oh, like in the small town, everyone could decide that they hate you and want to show up, um, at your door with pitchforks. And I think that's true, but like, one of the things that's also changed is that I would, and I've, I haven't lived in a small town and, and so this may fall down, but, but in my head at least, there's a certain amount of like, oh, you have to be really mad to like drive someone out of town or, and like, even if you take it to the sort of like another level of media, uh, um, you know, something like if you want to write like an angry letter to the newspaper, I mean, I'm sure some people and, and I've seen like really just this sucks kind of letters, but like there's a certain level of like effort required to expre express displeasure like the internet really like gives this thing where it's like, even if you're not that mad at somebody, like if you're just like, this is stupid. If like, you know, a thousand people say this is stupid, like individually, that seems like a perfectly normal and justifiable thing to say. But then when you multiply it across right. the entire internet, it suddenly becomes, you know, really tough. Plus then of course the internet also allows the really angry and in often many cases, you know, bad actors to then find each other and coordinate, but that's another problem. Yeah. Well, let me mention this movie, The Net, I think is the oldest movie yeah. on the list from 1995. And it was kind of like, and the, the premise is that there's a, a woman and hackers like replace her identity so that now she's a wanted fugitive. And so she has to go on the run. And it was sort of like interesting going back and watching it now because the internet, I'm like, oh, I remember what the internet was like in the 90s. It was so much less like toxic, you know, like, um, I mean, it was, it was, the internet's always been like awful people on the internet. But there was like there was a time before the the really like organized outrage mobs, um, you know, and and it was just yeah, it was just sort of like weird to to remember the different character of the internet in the early nineties. Well, that was back when the worst thing that could happen to you online was like catfishing, and catfishing is very one on one. 
you know, it's like, it's not like one on a million, um, which I think is why it feels kind of nicer, but it wasn't a two way street either. Um, the internet was often very one way back in the nineties. And I think the net's actually a good movie. It's certainly the best of the nineties internet fear movies. It's pretty good. I thought it went on a little too long, yeah. but um, I it's it's like again, it's thirty six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I found it perfectly enjoyable. So um, yeah. Um, okay, but so Sarah, you were gonna. Sorry, I want to get back to you. Were gonna talk about uh, a simple favor. You want to talk yeah. about that? Oh, I just thought it was great. I had no idea it was going to be so funny because it's billed as a as a thriller, and the the you know the the trailer is a thriller. And it's, you know, like it's a completely serious film. You're expecting that. And it's hysterical. Like I was in the theater by myself and there were maybe hmm. three people sitting a couple rows behind me. And, you you know, I haven't laughed that loud in, in a long time in a movie. And, you know, I was sort of like, it was incredibly refreshing in, in many ways. Um, and I really liked that they took this sort of, you know, they had the potential to make this uh, vlogger who sort of has this adorable cooking and domesticity channel on YouTube. And they had, they had the, the so many opportunities to make her so much more stereotypical and they didn't, you know, they, 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 they genuinely presented her as this fairly innocent, but, you know, sort of um, smart person in a, in a very awkward way where she sort of, um, you know, can really good at details and planning. And it turns out that all these things that make her good at making decorative cookies, um, you know, made her really good at, at sort of, you know, sleuthing where her missing friend was. Um, but, you know, yeah, I thought it was a lot more like serial mom. Well, right. So the premise of the movie is that, yeah, there's this mommy vlogger and she makes this new friend who's this very sort of stylish, urbane, um, beautiful woman who works for a, a, a fashion company. And... um and so the the mommy vlogger is sort of like awkward and um, you know sort of socially awkward and a little shy and and stuff and and so she's very sort of um, taken with with her her new friend and the friend says you know can you watch my kid or can you pick up my kid from school I'm going to be detained at work or delayed at work and then the friend never shows up and uh, and then she has to the the mommy vlogger has to like figure out what to do with this this kid that she's been left with. And I thought what was yeah you're you're right that this movie is absolutely hysterical, but there's nothing in the plot that's funny, right? You could make this exact same movie with the exact same plot and have no yeah. humor in it at all, right? It's right. so there's like a there's a substructure of a thriller plot and then the characters are just absolutely hilarious. So not only is Anna Kendrick who plays the mommy vlogger you know, totally hysterical throughout the movie, but also Blake Lively, who plays yeah. the, her friend, is also she's sort of this like devil may care, yeah, um, woman who's <laughs> constantly swearing and and stuff, and, and she's also hysterical. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely, it's it's like a good combination of a thriller and a comedy. Uh, did anyone else, Grady? Did you see this? No, I want to now though. Okay. <laughs> Anthony, yeah, I saw it. Um, I. It was interesting because I had seen it before we started talking about the podcast and I didn't even think about it in this context at all. Um, but it made sense once you put it on the list. And, and so it was like this interesting example of how, you know, there's this element that is, you know, about the internet, but really like 90% of the plot doesn't have a lot to do with that. It just becomes another element in this thriller that I wouldn't think of being particularly tech-centric at all. Although I guess it's true that particularly when we get to the finale, 
it plays a little bit more of a central role in the plot. But but in terms of what I took away from the film and the memorable images and story moments, I, I actually, if anything, thought the the sort of mommy vlogger stuff was not the strongest. Um, and I don't know, it just I I wasn't as taken. It didn't like strike. It just wasn't that memorable. Um, but I like, will send you the rest baking of the shows that are exactly like that. <laughs> Fair enough. I haven't. Part of it is I'm not like you know I'm like I'm like familiar with it in theory, but I yeah I haven't actually watched a lot of the the videos, and and so for that I did like the detail though that w- you actually see her shooting, and it's not just her on a webcam or anything, but like she actually has like lights and things <laughs> set up, which I thought was just really really good. No, I, I agree with that. That I mean, I'd never, I hadn't seen this movie when I put it on the list. Uh, one of my friends recommended it for this panel, and I, agree, yeah, I agree that the um, the mommy vlogger stuff is is somewhat incidental to the to the movie. But it was just interesting because, like, I was not at all familiar with the whole mommy vlogger phenomenon. Um, so that introduced me to the concept, basically, sort of like um, what was it, the den? Uh, I, I I was not really aware that there are these websites you can go on where you just like chat with ran- video chat with random people. And you just sort of like cycle through them. Uh, oh, David, chat roulette. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you've never had someone waggle their wiener at you on chat roulette. Um, but one thing, and I just jump in for a sec, because I think Anthony was just saying um, uh, the, the tech wasn't very like um, necessary for the story. There are these weird cliches that have started changing in movies. Like I remember the old cliche in horror movies was like, you pick up the phone and then they jiggle the dis- the disconnect thing and they're like, they've cut the lines. And like, I feel like the new version of that is, can you get a signal? I can't. And people holding their phones up in the air, like, can you get a signal? Like it might just be six inches to the left or something. Um, but I'm kind of curious if people have seen other stuff, like those other like tech cliches that pop up in these like, you know, online horror movies. Well, actually, let me just mention this movie Friend Request, which is a 100% formula cliche horror movie like everything in it you've seen a million times before you know there's like there's this girl and she's haunted by a ghost and then she has to track down like the 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 dark secrets that caused this ghost to exist and all this stuff um but then it it involves facebook um you know and 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 just making it involve facebook does actually kind of make it interesting um but but uh, just what you're saying grady about how there's these things that you know there are these cliches of horror movies and now they're turning into new cliches uh, I thought that was a, just a really clear example of that phenomenon in action. Yeah. I, I have, by the way, the name of the the vlogger that I swear to God they must have used as inspiration for this role for um, for a simple favor. Um, Nerdy Nummies, like the, this chick is is four ten, and she um, she makes little videos like you know, galaxy cupcakes and unicorn macaroons. And she is fascinatingly adorable. Like if you watch her, her, I don't, I don't regularly watch it, but I've seen it often enough that, you know, it'll pop up and I'm like, Oh, that's that chick who's super memorable. And, you know, you almost wonder if it's a caricature that she's created because she's so bright and sparkly that it's just sort of fascinating to watch her. But I would be very surprised if that if she was uh not used as one of the biggest inspirations for these this character i guess i'll say Grady, one of the new cliches that occurs to me that was in a couple of these was the like i can't close the window or unfriend the person or whatever i keep getting an error message whenever i try to oh yeah 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 uh, sure from this this contact this un- unwanted contact i'm having 
Which, I mean, goes back to Pulse, where, you know, they'll, they're characters who turn their computers off, and then those, you know, within a minute, it'll just turn itself back on. Or even if you, I think not in Pulse, but in some other things, when they unplug it, the computer still doesn't turn off. So I think it sort of is, like, just the new version of that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Has anyone uh, seen a movie on this list that we haven't talked about yet? Um... No, not me. So, so has nobody seen Tragedy Girls? No, no. Uh, or Scare Campaign? Sorry. Uh, Ingrid Goes West. We didn't really talk about. <laughs> Which I really want to see, and I know a lot about it, but I've only seen the trailer, so I should shut up. Yeah, me too. Uh, Same. Anthony, no, nobody's. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. We um, all focused on the unfriended movies. <laughs> uh, wait, is there? Oh, wait, no, we talked about unfriended dark web. Yeah, well, let me just. Yeah, Ingrid goes west. I mean, I guess I won't. If you guys haven't seen it, I won't talk too much about it. But it's it's really really good. Uh, I have that as my second favorite on this list after uh, searching. Um, and I'll also say scare campaign. Like it doesn't even have a rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Because <laughs> uh, I guess it's like so under the radar, but I actually thought it was really good. I have it as fourth on my list here, and so the premise is that there's a um, like a horror themed candid camera show where they you know have a person who doesn't know that it's a TV show and they put them into some scary situation where it's all like a haunted house kind of thing with actors playing zombies and things, and um, and the uh, the TV network executive says you know your ratings are dipping and we need to take this up a notch. And she shows them videos from the internet where there's like people who actually go out and kill people in real life and videotape it and post it on the internet. And she says, you know, we need to make it more like this. Like, obviously, don't actually kill anyone, but we need to, this is what we're trying to compete with. You know, you, we gotta like crank it up a notch. And so I actually thought that was interesting. The, um, the sort of, I, Grady, you were touching on this a little bit earlier, but this sort of, um, contest between old media and new media and how the people who are, you know, um, who have positions in old media, media and are invested in it, feel like the new media is just ruining this good thing that they had, right? Corrupting it. Yeah, well, and it's interesting too. Like that's actually one thing I liked about Unfriended Dark Web is, um, I mean, I guess these are mostly horror movies, so they focus on the negative stuff. But it's nice to see a movie where technology actually. Like, everyone's not just alienated and remote and thinking of killing themselves because, you know, they have an Instagram account. It's actually nice to see a movie that showed how people were using technology to, like, communicate with each other and be more together and more present. Um, there's a, there's the whole bowling alone thing, you know, that sociology book from the 90s that's become sort of, like, iconic, which is basically, like, this, this history of America's social institutions, you know, uh, decaying. So, you know, less people belong to groups, less people belong to the Rotarians, less people belong to bowling leagues. And this idea that, you know, we're more and more isolating ourselves in our houses and losing these shallow connections. And where a lot of sociologists in the past, like 10 years have seen those connections regrowing is online. You know, they, they, they look at stuff like, you know, World of Warcraft or, you know, um, uh, Fortnite or something and say, you know, look at these people and the connections. It's the same shallow connections, but it's the same connection you'd have in terms of how we measure these things. If you saw someone once a week at bowling night or something, you know, you see them and you're in the same guild on Warcraft or something. So it's nice to occasionally see a movie where the internet isn't like just out to murder everyone or make you murder yeah. yourself. Does anyone know, is this a real thing that like 
five high school students would all get on Skype video and just sort of be on that for like an hour? Is that a, I don't even know if that's a real thing or not, or I feel like people text or whatever more than video chat, but I don't know if, if it's like five people or something. I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm, I've seen something, especially a group of that size. Probably the closest is I know people who are in long distance relationships will sometimes Skype each other and just keep that open for, or in a work context, potentially you keep the, you know, the, the, the video chat open, but I haven't heard of that just with like a bunch of friends, but like, given that it exists in those other contexts, it, it makes sense to me that that would happen. But it also, it definitely both all for unfriended and for searching becomes this thing that's sort of required for the plot too, that you yeah. just have to have so much socializing and so much time on your laptop. And, and I was mostly willing to buy it. I will say the one moment that I was sort of, felt like an old man getting outraged <laughs> was in unfriended dark web they are they start out all hanging out as friends and it's a way for them to be together i totally agree and it, and it was actually more than any of them i think that it felt genuinely warm and you believed that they were actually friends you didn't quite understand why they were friends but i i felt like you know you 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 there was this sense of human connection then they started playing Cards Against Humanity remotely. Oh, yeah. And I just, I was like, you can't know because if you're doing it remotely, you know who's putting down each card. So the whole thing where you're picking up cards randomly is gone. So I was, I was like, this is stupid. You can't play Cards Against Humanity remotely. But that was my only objection. Well, and I will say, you know, that, that kind of relationship does exist. And I just say Warcraft again. I, I spent a long time writing an article about Warcraft a while back and got super duper addicted. This was years ago. I'm all better now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, you would see guilds, you know, where they'd all be on vent together for like, you know, it'd be like 25 people on vent together and there'd be hours of planning some, some raid. And then there'd be like hours and hours on the raid together. And then there'd be sort of hours of sorting out the loot and defining. I mean, these people would be interacting socially with each other, sometimes 12 hours at a stretch. Sometimes it would go last over a day and they would have to do it on the weekends. Um, and they got really involved in each other's lives. Like people would like try to commit suicide and they'd like go into the hospital, like whatever state it was in and drive to see them. And I mean, really they go to each other's weddings, like even if they'd never met before, it was really like a, a real fascinating thing to see, but it was people sitting around on vent for like 12 to 16 hours at times. Well, so do you think we'll see movies where what you're watching on the screen is just a bunch of World of Warcraft characters standing around and then you're hearing the conversation that they're having? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you already have that. Um, what's it called? Machinima, you know, with the red and blue where it's like people making movies in Halo and stuff like, you know, using the on-screen avatars to act out scenarios and then putting voiceover over them like they're on vent to sort of like, uh, you know, make something out of it. It's kind of interesting. It's a trend that kind of died out. No, but I'm talking about like a thriller where, you know, the what you're seeing on the screen is completely incidental. This oh. is just like what what they would actually be looking at while they're oh. having a conversation about something else. Oh, so know? not like not like Ready Player One, more like uh Locke. Did you ever see did you see Locke? I wanted to so he's driving it's Tom Hardy driving around the car. Yeah, and it's just him with different people it. on his speakerphone. It's like a thriller. Yeah. So yeah, well, I well, could see that. Well, cause this is the thing, like, well, actually, that's a good example, but yeah, like, um, like, I'm skeptical that, that, that so many people would all be on video chat at the same time, but like, would you, <laughs> I mean, you were complaining about, you know, why would you go to a movie to watch your a computer screen, but can you imagine a movie where it's just like a, a, a chat between two people 
and um, on their phones, you know, so all you're seeing is the phone, the whole movie, and just the text messages going back and forth. Like, oh my God. Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> well, I actually, there actually is. Yeah. I was going to say there actually is like a whole genre of chat fiction now, like like apps like Hooked, which <laughs> I haven't really used. But, um, but yeah, this is I mean, it's a real thing. And um, people I think, you know, people probably a little younger than the people on this podcast um, are actually interested in it. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, Derek Jarman kind of did that with his movie Blue back in 1993. That is literally a blue screen for like 92 minutes while you hear sounds that this sort of soundscape and these voices and this sort of scripted um, stream of consciousness narrative unfolds. I uh, took a girl on a date to see that. And it really, um, we got married later, but like, she really won't let me forget, <laughs> forget that experience. Well, well, now that Anthony, now that you mentioned that, I, I have seen there are books where the whole book is just sort of like a chat log. Oh, basically. yeah. Um. I guess I don't know if, if there are any I, – I, I don't know if there are a ton of examples of books that deal with uh, internet horror through – I mean, they're actually – now that I think – there must be. But I mean, some um, on Facebook, uh, Nathan Bucco mentions – and this is actually a really good story. But there's a story by Sean McGuire uh, called Hashtag Connolly House, Hashtag We Shouldn't Be Here, where there's uh, a group of ghost hunters and they go into a haunted house and, and they're live tweeting it. Um, and so you're just seeing what all their tweets are. Um, as they're exploring the haunted house. And it's actually a really good, really scary story. Um, um, yeah, Grady, do you have examples of this? No, but there is, you know, so I don't know if you guys know who Shunji Iwaii is, but he's a Japanese director who's used to be really amazing in the late 90s, early 2000s. He's kind of gone a little quiet, but he was, he, his movies are really, really um, beautiful experiments. And he made a movie in 2001 called All About Lily Choo Choo. Um, and it's, it's about a, a, a sort of pop idol and the people who are obsessed with her. And it revolves around sort of these, this high school with these kids in it. And some are bullies and some aren't and some are brave and some are cowards, but they all have these very different identities online when they're part of this Lily Choo Choo message board. And it sort of culminates in this act of violence at a, at a Lily Choo Choo, um, uh, concert but to make the movie he started and he was a pretty famous director who's really seen as very hip and young but he started uh, um a lily choo choo message board and he played several characters on it and other people came in and thousands of people at a certain point were using it and so the sort of narrative that came out of it it was almost like improvised or crowdsourced became a huge part of the movie um, and then the message board was shut down and frozen and, uh, the movie sort of unfolded from there. And it's, it's, it's a really amazing sort of form of crowdsourcing. And then he sort of did that in physical space because the students in this high school, he took an abandoned high school and populated it with hundreds and hundreds of kids, all of whom were non-actors and, um, he gave each of them their own little bio. And so some of these kids never even have lines, but they're there in this school while this thing was being shot. And he did the same thing when he shot the Lily Choo Choo concert. I mean, literally thousands of people. And he wrote like basically a paragraph for every single person at that concert, even though none of them say anything you can hear. And so it was this amazing experiment kind of in, uh, like internet fiction interacting with real fiction interacting with real people and coming back around to be this movie it's if you get a chance to see it and i don't know how you will i think it's out of print but it's it's real and it's very it's one of my favorite movies of all time it's really beautiful and really moving and one of the few movies i've seen about teenagers using the internet that says they're actually okay 
And what they're doing is actually fine. And there's actually some real beauty to how this works. And it's like 2001 internet. So it's super duper clunky. Um, but it's really fabulous. Anyways, sorry. Digressing. <laughs> that sold it for me. I mean, I think one of the, yeah, one awesome. of the things about this genre in general was that, you know, it, it can be, I feel like, the, the fears and our, our fears of the internet are discussed way more often than the fact that it's just a tool like television, like film, like anything else that, you know, uh, you can choose to use responsibly or not. You can choose to see the people who are, you know, sort of hiding behind avatars as real people or not. And I don't think that that gets discussed often enough. I think it's, you know, we are treated as a society, like we're sort of, um, you know, held, held captive and we're slaves by this technology. And we are, you know, being brainwashed by engineers to think a certain way. And I, I think some of that's true. But what doesn't get discussed often enough is that, you know, there, there's actually a, a fair amount of um, variability in terms of how you decide as an individual to use it and respond to it and, you know, personal responsibility. And there's a lot out there that's very positive. Well, it's interesting from my perspective because I, I've, yeah, certainly in the last year or two, I've gotten very, very negative about all the toxicity uh, and just, you know, attacks and everything on the internet. But then, like, my whole job involves the internet. Like, this podcast could only exist with the internet. And it's amazing to me that I can just interview authors from all over the world and make mm -hmm. their um, interviews available in perpetuity. And, and so it's, it's just weird that, yeah, like, there's such a, um, like, dichotomy of of how good the internet is and bad at the same time even for someone like me who's like life revolves almost entirely around it but it's something yeah. interesting sarah just said the idea that there's a real person behind that avatar and that's really the engine that powers a lot of these movies right you don't know who's behind that it could be like a weird charon four who's going to put you in a, a bathtub and pour acid all over you or it could be you know someone who's pretending to be someone they're not or it could be a ghost like you just don't know and that not knowing is is really fascinating and um, like I always use my real name online, like on Reddit, my username is my name, um, which is weird because I actually moderate the horror lit board, uh, sub. And so like, there'll be people saying really mean things about my book sometimes. So they'll, they'll ask a question, you know, this guy's such a jerk and I'll like pop up and just say something. Oh, I'm sorry. You feel that way. You know, the reason <laughs> I did that in the book was because of this, but I totally get it. Doesn't work for you. And like, they're so embarrassed. The real person is there mm -hmm. talking to them. It's, um, and I've noticed also that um, in comment sections and Twitter threads, often people just want to talk about your stuff. And the second you yourself show up, it's like it's like the parents just came in the basement and switched on the light. It's like, <laughs> nope, we don't want that. We don't want something real here. We're, we're good. Um, it's the quickest way to shut down a comment thread is to show up in it when it's about like one of your books. <laughs> but, well, you know, just so, go ahead. Well, I mean, this is like maybe a little off topic, but I do wonder if um, like Facebook and Twitter should just by default have like a six hour delay from the time you hit enter on your yes. comment to the time that anyone else actually sees it. Because I feel like that would make the world a much better place. And a lot of people after like four hours of calming down would say, actually, I don't really want this on the, you know, everyone in the world to see this comment for the rest of time, you know. Or even if not a six-hour delay, like a five-minute delay. I feel like people might actually tolerate that. And I think even like just hitting the button and then having a moment of like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> um, I think that would actually have a significant impact. 
Well, I do think that just because you can do everything doesn't mean you should, which I think is like a Neil Stevenson quote. And I do think the internet is going to have to decide if it wants to put, not the internet, but like different companies are going to have to decide if they want to put, um, you know, limit themselves. Like, do you want less anonymity online? Does that actually encourage, you know, a healthier environment? Do you want a delay? On these things, I could see, you know, one problem with things online is they move really, really fast, like y'all were just saying. So I could see a three hour delay becoming really standard with a lot of places, like, um, and, and really like lowering the heated rhetoric in a lot of places. Um, so I don't know, maybe like limiting yourself, but just because the internet's unlimited and free doesn't mean it should be in every case. There might be a real, you know, attraction to a limited internet for some people. I thought Sarah's point also brought up this, um, made me think of how, like, the, she said that, you know, how the internet really is just a tool. And I think that sort of brings us back to the thrillers in the sense that the, in some ways, the stuff that's about the internet and particularly about how scary the internet can be is going to be inherently feel a little heightened and unreal. And in a lot of ways, the things that best represent my experience with the internet are the, aren't things that are actually even focused on technology, but just, you know, depictions of life in 2018 that happen to involve the internet and because it doesn't have to make either scare you about the internet or make even just make a big statement about what life like is like now online it actually feels a lot more believable let me say okay so a couple of these movies have a theme of basically people committing awful crimes in order to get attention and money out of the internet and i think that there is there's a level of truth to that. I was just reading this book by um, Ryan Holiday. Um, oh, what's the title? It's something about like trust. Trust me, I'm lying. I think is the title, but it's about the basically the PR industry. And one of the things he talks about is how only the only um, stories that go viral, more or less. I think like there's like cute cats is one thing, but then pretty much everything else is anger. That if if you post anything that's not angry, it's not going to go viral. And if you post something that's angry, uh, it's much more likely to go viral. And so, uh, it, you know, the internet becomes this sort of like super villain anger amplification machine. Um, and then that gets even more, um, you know, fraught when uh, the profit motive is entwined with that, where where people are pumping out ang you know stories that are going to provoke people and piss them off and get them riled up uh, as part of their business plan. Um, and I don't know if I have a point about that, but just I, I think it is interesting how how movies are are reflecting that that underlying dynamic at some level. Although I would say that, you know, I think I think there was just an article in The New Yorker or something, which, again, God, I sound old in this this episode. <laughs> but um, but they were talking about, you know, there is this thing that people do get wrong, though, when they talk about uh, Internet anger and that and the sort of equation you're talking about, Dave. Where it's like that stuff is very short term and the real reason people sort of return to the internet again and again and again and check their Twitter feed 20 or 30 times a day is sometimes because they're outraged, but outrage isn't sustainable. It's often because they want to see something funny. They want to hear someone make a joke they hadn't thought of or, you know, some, some dumb comment that's ridiculous and laughable or, you know, a cute animal. Like that's, that's sort of the stuff that has legs. Um. See, Sarah, we're running, we're, all, we're running out of sh out of time. I want to give you a chance if you have. Do you have any uh, any other points you wanted to make, or any other uh, works you wanted to talk about, or anything before we ra start wrapping things up? I well, I don't has. I mean, so I kind of wanted to talk about the end of searching, but it's a huge spoiler. It gives the whole thing away. I don't. Care. So I don't know about that. I, I don't mind spoilers, so feel free. 
Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Well, Grady has spoken. So wait, wait, Grady, maybe as the host of the show, I should weigh in on this. Yeah, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, I'm just saying if you're getting like a straw poll here, I'm fine with it. Oh, oh, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, like I said, since we're almost at the end, I guess we can, um, declare this, like, the spoiler zone for, uh, yeah. searching. If you have, like I said, I love searching, so if you haven't seen it, um, and you care about spoilers, go, go check it out. But, uh, uh, otherwise, I think we'll, we'll talk about what Sarah wants to talk about. So, Sarah, <laughs> hit us. Well, first of all, I think that, you know, I, when I was talking earlier about how I kind of hate the trope of the shallow teenager, which is also, more often than not, the shallow teenage girl, uh, which bothers me. There's some, there's definitely some misogyny, uh, in there, but I, I really loved one of the things I loved about searching is that it flips that narrative on its head. You know, he, he tries to uncover all this stuff about his daughter's past and his daughter's online life. And he learns that there's a lot that he doesn't know about his daughter. Um, and as it turns out, the detective, you know, who volunteered for his daughter's case, uh, ends up being, uh, you know, is, is a mother and she essentially is, uh, uh, accessory and accomplice to what actually happened. Um, which I'm not explaining well at all. But the point is the mom who's the detective ends up being kind of the bad guy. Um, which I found entirely plausible if for no other reason than uh, lately online with the Kavana investigation and, you know, the response of, uh, white, Christian moms on the, on the right. Um, this idea of these sort of the white mom who is overprotective of a privileged son who, you know, she doesn't want her innocent, you know, uh, white, uh, son to go to jail and experience what everybody else who goes to jail experiences. And there's no accountability. There's no sense of, but he did these things. Um, so I thought, you know, especially coming, you know, the last couple of days, my head has been totally engrossed in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings, that that was, um, you know, I don't know how intentionally political, but certainly came across as political where we have these, you know, women who were Trump supporters, um, who are sort of going against their own interests and, and going against the, the daughters of their friends, you know, and, and not caring what happens to them. And so there was something very resonant about that and really refreshing that I loved seeing that, um, especially as, you know, so often we, we see the villains who are sort of comical villains, like the one that took the fall in the, in the, um, in the film. But anyway, I just thought that that was a really great and also just the, the artistry of the, how the twist happened. I, I have a lot of respect for the fact that I did not see any of it coming because they did a good enough job hiding all those little hints uh, up until the end that it made total sense and it was plausible and not unrealistic at all, but at the same time managed to actually be a legitimate surprise. I agree with that. I think it, it subverts sort of the normal storyline in some ways. The one thing that about also about the ending that I wasn't crazy about, besides what I mentioned before in terms of just over-relying on YouTube videos, was that because... Deborah Messing was the only other actor that you kind of knew, <laughs> like the only other famous actor. So you're yeah. kind of like, why is she in this movie if she's just here to help out with this case? And then you're like, oh, she's the villain. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, Anthony, we mentioned that you interviewed the director. Did you get any sense from that conversation about whether there was any sort of um, commentary or agenda behind the movie? Or was it just sort of entertainment? I think the, that my understanding was that the way they came up with the story was more... 
that they, you know, the direct, you know, the production company had come to them and said, we'd like you to actually initially what was proposed with this would be a short film that would be part of a larger anthology film of these sort of like laptop screen movies. And then when that kind of fell through, they said, why don't you make this into a full feature film? Um, and I think really for them, the seed of it was, um, just the short film in the beginning and, and sort of then using that as a way to develop the relationship for, the whole rest of the movie. Um, so I don't, I mean, it's not to say that those political overtones aren't there, but, but I don't necessarily think that it was, yeah, I, I, that wasn't the focus of our conversation at least. Mm. Um, all right. Yeah. So we're pretty much out of time. I'll just mention, Oh, let's see. Um, on Facebook, uh, Christopher M. Savasco mentions, um, that basically like half the episodes of black mirror. Um, oh yeah. This theme. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say too much about black mirror cause we've already done whole episodes about the seasons. Um, but if you're you know, interested in this theme, you could definitely go check those out. Um, I also just mentioned that there are three movies, three other movies that I sort of came across that fit this theme, fear.com, Megan is missing and like share follow that like did not seem to be particularly available online. So I wasn't able to watch them, but, um, if you're interested in the topic, um, th- those might be check- worth checking out. Um, and, uh, yeah. Does anyone have any um, uh, any final thoughts or uh, uh, anything else they didn't get to didn't get a chance to mention? The only thing I was going to throw in is it is really interesting that the the ghost movies on the internet because kind of the afterlife and the internet are really similar, right? It's like a place we we feel like exists. It has no real physical reality, and yet if you believe in ghosts or whatever, you feel like you know, or if you believe in an afterlife, you feel like things from it affect your daily life. Um, so I do think it's sort of a natural fit, the horror movie and the internet. They're both about vague places that we can't locate on a map, and yet we seem to interact with. Hmm. Uh, that's a really interesting observation. Uh, Sarah or Anthony, final thoughts? Well, actually, that ties into one of the other things I was wanted to recommend, which is not quite a thriller, but is, kind, is about the afterlife, which is this uh, Carmen Machado short story, Help Me Follow My Sister Into the Land of the Dead, which I think is anthologized in a whole bunch of places, but is also online right now at Lightspeed. Um, and the one other thing I wanted to recommend, which is also well, not actually, a thriller, but actually, is about the... Actually, Anthony, let me... Because that story is told in the format of a Kickstarter pitch. That's right. Right. It's a Kickstarter pitch about somebody who wants to go um, to the land of the dead because she thinks her sister has, you know, basically followed their parents there. Um, and so she uses the um, the updates... And the, the commenting in a Kickstarter campaign really, really well. Like, I thought it was going to be a gimmick, but it, it works amazingly well. Um, um, and then I would just say... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You, yeah, you had one other thing to say? Yeah, I would also say the movie 8th Grade, not a thriller at all, but is actually very suspenseful and agonizing and is about the internet. So people should check it out. Uh, actually, I'm just seeing my notes here. Yeah, oh, our listener Linda Bont also mentions an episode of Fringe in season one, episode twelve, called "The No Brainer," where it's basically about a uh, like a computer virus where if you open the email attachment, it literally melts your brain. Uh, so that also definitely fits the theme. Sarah, any uh, any last thought? No, I'm good. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll log off. Uh, so we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha for joining us on the show. 
And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.